Good morning. It happened to me the first time in uh, about around 1980 to 85, I can't remember exact date, but um, I was living in Boston with my wife, my new wife at the time, and um, uh, I was working, I was living in the kind of the suburbs in the southern side of Boston, and I worked all the way down into downtown uh, on the Boston Harbor. It's a cool job. Loved it. Brutal traffic getting in, but it was a cool place to live. And um, I'm going to work one day, and, you know, Boston traffic was always really bad. But this particular day, it was unbelievably bad. And I'm like, man, that must be a really bad accident. This is really, really messed up. And finally, I get to the place where I realize what's happening because the road has been blocked off. You can't get through this, this major artery to get, that's what they call it in Boston, an artery, ma- major artery to get down to downtown, blocked off. Nobody's getting through. There's um, all this preparation is going on. There's, there's bleachers being set up in the, 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 the streets and all kind of cars running around, people running around. I found out when I got to work that President Reagan, that's how old this story is, President Reagan was coming to this town called Dorchester, just on the outside outskirts of Boston. And man, they were scurrying around, getting ready, preparing for the coming of the President of the United States. And uh, of course, why is this a big deal? Because a great arrival of a great person calls for a great preparation. And presidents, I mean, I don't know how people feel about presidents today. Sometimes I'm like, I th- do we not have respect for our presidents? <laughs> it's like, wow. But, you know, a president is still a great person, whatever you, whatever you believe about what they believe and are due respect because of their position. And so all this preparation, getting ready for the president of the United States, everybody's ready, excited, anticipation. And then later on, we lived in Kansas City, same thing happened. Saw the first Bush, George Bush, and then later on, Clinton, and then the Bush again, and then Obama when we lived here, and um, then Trump, and now Biden. And, you know, there's, these guys come like Lorain County Community College or Smitty's. Remember when Obama came to Smitty's in Elyria a couple years ago, a couple, couple decades ago? But, uh, you know, every time a president comes to a place where we're living, we see the same thing happening, all this preparation because it's the arrival of a great person that's coming. Well, When we get to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, we see the same kind of thing. It's prep time. Something is coming, and Luke, the writer, is all over this. And he realizes that there's this great arrival of this great person that calls for a great preparation. If you'll turn to Luke, chapter 3, I'll begin to unpack this, because Luke seems like he gets this better than anybody. When Mark, you know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Mark writes about the coming of Jesus Christ into our world, it's like he gives a verse or two of preparation then jumps right into the message. He's just eager. But Luke, if you've been with us, he spends three chapters getting ready. Why? Why not just tell us Jesus came? Here's what I think is going on. Luke was captivated by this idea that with the coming of Jesus, there was a great move of God coming upon the earth. A move like had never, ever been experienced. A move of God that people had been dreaming about and anticipating about and praying about for years and years and years, decades, centuries. And Luke realized this move of God in a great way 
called for a great preparation. So he takes the time to bring prophets in and angels and visions and tell us all these stories because something great is about to happen and there's a great preparation that's necessary. And I wonder, is there anyone here today who has felt a, a burning, a desire, a, a hunger for God to move in a great way again? Anybody? Is, is there a hunger for God to move in your life? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? Is there a hunger, a passion for God to, to do something in power once again? Because see, whenever there is, whenever that's present, boy, I'm, I'm amped up this morning, aren't I? Because I know what's coming up with this sermon. Whenever there's a, a move of God about to come on the earth, everything changes. With the coming of Jesus, I mean, people got healed. Lame began to walk. The blind could see. Whenever God does something powerful, it changes people's lives. Sometimes I wonder in the church of Jesus Christ, are we just living the status quo or do we realize that God wants to move again upon our families, our church, our nation, our world? And when he wants to do that, he gets his people preparing. But if we're so busy doing our own little thing, we won't be aware of what God wants to do and we won't be a part of the preparation. It'll pass us right by. Maybe this is true of you when you were a younger Christian and you, you hungered for God to forgive you of your sin. You hungered for God to move in power. And maybe after you've walked with God for a while, you've lost some of that. So I just, I've been praying that God would stir in each one of us, in all of our campuses, a hunger for him, a desire for God to move in power in our lives, in our world, in our churches, in our nation. And if this is resonating with you, you're going to love this passage because Luke gets it. He realizes that a great move of God requires a great preparation. And so he's all about telling us this story. And when I read this text, so if you'll turn to Luke chapter 3, when I read this text, at, at first glance, it may not seem like such a great deal, but it's my job to help you see what Luke is doing in this passage. So would you stand with me to Luke chapter 3, turn to chapter, Luke chapter 3, and, um, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to kind of stop right in the middle of the story of John the Baptist, the story of God moving, but I don't have time to talk about any more than that. So here we go, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Actually, it's not Abilene, it's Abilene. Abilene's in Texas, right? Abilene. Uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, this key phrase, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is a quote now from Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. See, since this, this movement, God's about to move. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Amen? All right, you, you may be seated. So Luke, I believe, is doing much more than just telling us the time stamp. So you, when you see this phrase, um, the move of God, and Luke gets this, and he wants to help us see this. And so he's helping us now see in his first couple of verses how God is preparing himself, how God, what God is doing to prepare this great move. And so Luke stamps it, time stamps it, as the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, they didn't have what we call today, you know, the Gregorian calendar. So, you know, we talk about 2023 or, you know, AD 6. They didn't call this year AD 6. They, 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 um, they recognized the time of the seasons by the years of the emperor. So Tiberius Caesar is the emperor of the Roman Empire. And everybody knows in his reign what, what the 15th year is. So that's when we can go back to the annals go, that's when this great move of God happened in the 15th year of the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. And as he begins to tell this story and mentions all these famous people, all these different places, the key phrase that I highlighted, I want you to see, is that amidst all of this, the, here's the phrase, the word of God came. Word of God came to this no-name person who he doesn't have a title, he's just the son of Zechariah. And he's in a of all places, you know, all these royal places up here, but no, he's just in the wilderness. There's no big deal going on here. And that's why Luke sets this against, and I'll explain this in a second, why he takes the time to tell us about all these rulers, all these significant people, but here is the big phrase. And so whenever the word of God comes, whenever the word of God is spoken, when, whenever God speaks in power, we call that revelation. That the Bible is the revelation of God. It is God speaking. The Bible is not some people writing down some inspirational thoughts. The Bible is God breathed, 2 Timothy 3 says. It is God breathed. It is God's revelation to us, to people. That's what the Bible is for. It's for people like you and I. Whether it makes a lot of sense to you or whether you, you read the Bible and you're like, I don't see what's going on here. It is God's revelation and Luke wants to see this is the most significant thing about these first couple of verses, that God is speaking, God is moving, he's revealing. Now, what is God revealing? And it, as I answer that question, let me help you see why Luke goes to the detail that he does to give us all this stuff. Because he could have just said in the 15th year of Tiberius, Caesar, God's word came to John, but he takes all this time to speak about all these people. And so because he takes the time, I want to take a couple of seconds to try to understand what Luke is doing. So Tiberius Caesar, I just said, he's the emperor of the, the Roman Empire. So just kind of catch our, 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 our breath here. Here's a picture of the Roman Empire. That's, that's a massive amount of, of, of land and, and area that the Roman Empire had. It, it's just it's almost like the whole then known world. And this one guy, Tiberius Caesar, is the emperor over the, the whole thing. And when he, then he begins to talk about not just the empire, but when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Now, in the big Roman empire, 
in this tiny little rectangle, I have um, highlighted the nation of Israel, a tiny nation in the midst of the Roman Empire. And in the nation of Israel, that tiny little nation, there's a little region called Judea. So let me blow that up a little bit bigger. So here's a, a, you know, the, the nation of Israel, and then here's Judea. And of course, it's important because Bethlehem is there, Jerusalem is there. And this is where Herod, the, the tetrarch, um, I mean, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Herod the tetrarch, you see this word four times, tetrarch just means a, a ruler of a fourth. Okay, so, so the Israel was, was broken up into four areas, and there's so tetrarchies, and a tetrarch a, you know, owned a quarter or ran a quarter of that. And that's all these names. They're all the biggest names, the emperor, the governor, the rulers of all this area. And then not only does we talk about all these rulers, in each one of these places, let me help you just see, here's, here's Abilene, here's Eturia, here's Trachonitis, here's Galilee, here's Judea. These were all these guys are ruling, and all these things are being written about them that have all this pomp and circumstance. These are our big guys amidst all of that and amidst the, the high priest and Annas and Caiaphas, God's word comes. So let's blow this up because he talks about this happening in the wilderness around the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. So let me blow this up a little bit more. There is the nation of Israel. Here's the area we're going to talk about. And so bam, let's make this big. Hiding in that map is this phrase, wilderness of Judea. And I don't know if you can see, but here's Bethlehem. Here's Jerusalem. We know about these places in the Judean hills. Here's the Jordan River. And John is not in Jerusalem. He's not, he's not in Rome, in the, the, the center of the, cap, of the empire. He's not in Jerusalem, the center of Israel. He's in the wilderness alongside the Jordan River that goes from Galilee down to the Dead Sea. It's like a, there's no hardly anybody there that lives there. People go there and cross through there, but it's, it's like in the middle of nowhere, God is speaking. So big picture, Roman Empire, but then tiny little Judea in the wilderness, there's where God speaks. And it's as if what Luke is helping us see is that when God moves in power, he doesn't go to the courts of the emperor in Rome. He doesn't even go to the, the, the governor's palace in Judea. He, does, he, he bypasses all these famous people, all these you know, religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, you know, the most powerful people in Israel. He bypasses all the famous and powerful people and he sends his own messenger. When God's about to move, very rarely will it be seen in the White House. Very rarely will it, well, probably never. You know, it's not gonna be seen in the famous places. It's probably not gonna get a whole lot of attention in the media or social media. In fact, it might start in a small place like a little town like Wilmore, Kentucky. It only has a couple thousand people. It's a no-name place. And maybe God's starting a revival from Asbury. You read about this. God chooses places that nobody else would choose he bypasses the famous and the powerful. He bypasses the big, the splashy, and he sends his own messenger. And if there's a messenger, there's a message. What's the message of John the Baptist? Preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, if you're a church person, you get baptism. That phrase, I know what a baptism is. We do those all the time. And, and I know what repentance is. It's saying, I'm sorry for my sins. Not 
quite. Um, this phrase, baptism of repentance, we don't want to read our 21st century ideas into it. We don't want to read our American ideas into it. What we want to understand is what, does the, what is the Bible saying when it uses a phrase, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Well, if you'll look at your Bible, you'll see that John, that Luke is about to explain this because the next words after baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins says, as it is written. So, so Luke is saying that this passage that he's about to quote from the Old Testament book, Isaiah, you tracking with me? Isaiah 800 years before, that prophetic word from Isaiah chapter 40 explains what a baptism of repentance is. So instead of reading our ideas in, we're going to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying through his word, and he's taking Luke to Isaiah chapter 40. He's taking John the Baptist back to Isaiah chapter 40. And let me just help you real quickly see the setting. Isaiah chapter 40 is a time of exile. Some people are living in, some, some Jews are living in Israel. Many of them are exiled in Babylon. It's not so much the physical exile as it is a spiritual exile. I believe that in the United States of America right now, we are virtually in a spiritual exile. There is no, hardly any hunger for God. To, to have a passion and a hunger for God, you'll be, you'll be ridiculed. And there's, as a country, we, we are so far from God. It's as if we're in a spiritual exile. But it seems that in the Bible, when a country, when a nation, when a person, have you ever felt like you're in an exile? That you're, you're removed from the presence of God? When a person, a nation, a people realize they're in exile and cry out to God, God moves. And this is what's happening in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, is that Isaiah is saying, I know we're in exile. I know you feel far from God. Maybe it's because of your sin. Maybe because you've just ignored God. Maybe it's because of some things that have happened that have hurt you and you're disappointed and you're frustrated. Well, that sounds like 2023, doesn't it? I mean, these things happen in our lives and we say, forget God. He's not making things work the way I want them to work. I don't feel close to God. I don't feel close to what God's doing. I feel like I'm a spiritual exile. When that happens, cry out to God because God hears his people in exile. He hears his people crying out for him. And in Isaiah chapter 40, God's saying, I'm about to do something. He sends a prophet, Isaiah, just like he sends John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a picture of Elijah the prophet and a picture of Isaiah the prophet. He, he's the first prophet of the New Testament. And he's just like the days of Isaiah, he says God's about to do something. God's about to move. He's about to move in power. So you better get ready. So this phrase, prepare the way for the Lord, becomes the theme of John the Baptist. He's the one who goes before the Lord. He's the one that is sent to prepare the way for the Lord. And who is supposed to prepare? It's we, the people of God. This, this preparing, this repentance is not a message sent to pagan people. It's sent to the people of God. We would say today, it's not sent to generally the United States of America or the world. It's sent to the church. You say, well, wait, wait, wait. The church is not supposed to repent. Well, that's, the, that's the whole problem right there, is that the church doesn't feel like it needs to repent. But all throughout the Bible, the Bible calls the people of God to repent. 
concluding all the way into Revelation chapter 3, when Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Who's he talking to? The church. And he says, repent. Church, repent. So, so this message of pre preparation is the message of repentance. That's how we prepare. That's what Luke is saying. That's what John the Baptist is saying. That's what I'm helping you see from this passage. This is the core truth, is that while there's, the Roman Empire is, is, is um, flourishing, it's not the place where life is found. It's where this, this messenger named John the Baptist is coming to speak this word of revelation to the people of God. Get ready, because God's about to do something, not just in the people of God, but in the people of God so that it spreads throughout the earth. And whenever God wants to move in the earth, he starts in his people praying, getting them to repent. So we're back to this language of repentance, but we still haven't figured out what exactly does repentance mean? Well, let's let Luke, who's quoting Isaiah, let's let them define for us what repentance is. It might surprise you because we don't talk a whole lot about it. So here's the phrase that he, that's in Luke chapter 3 that's the quote from Isaiah 40. Prepare the way for the Lord. Get ready. God's about to move. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Now, in one sense, this is something that the people of the ancient world would have instantly recognized in a very literal way. That is that whenever there was a great arrival of a great king, or a great dignitary, or any kind of king, any kind of dignitary, they would oftentimes prepare the way in a very physical way by bringing out the construction crew. So you would, you'd have a, a person who would be declaring, like a preacher, like a, a, a herald, saying, the king is coming. The, you know, the governor is coming. This big guy is coming. Prepare the way. Get, make the road smooth. And so this is like construction language. I should have put on my yellow construction jacket for this part of the sermon. This is talking about the roads that have been fallen in disrepair that lead to wherever the king is going. And there's basically four construction directions that are given. Let me break them out this way. It's the same verses. I just put them in order. And the idea is that every valley, so that's the low places that have been flooded, they be filled in because the king is coming in a chariot or some kind of a carriage or maybe sitting on a platform on rods on people's shoulders. So, so whether he's a carriage or whether he's on people's shoulders, there's this idea that the road's got to be smooth. The valley's got to be filled in. The mountains and hills got to be cut off, the tops of them, so you can get through. Crooked roads need to become straight. This all makes sense in a construction kind of way, preparing the way literally for the coming of this dignitary. But what is often happening in the Old Testament, especially, even more than the New Testament, is that the Hebrew people, the Jews, were very, very colorful speakers. They loved symbols and metaphors. And so these four phrases are actually metaphors that I want to unpack for you because some of God's greatest truths are found in, in metaphors. And our job is to unpack, to find the message in the metaphor. Now, you know how to do this. Let me tell you some famous metaphors. You know many of these. Jesus is the Lamb of God. We instantly translate that. We know that that doesn't mean that Jesus 
goes around going, ah, ah, he has a soft, you know, fluffy skin that you pet, you know. No, Jesus is not a little pet. He's not a, some lamb in, a, in, a, in a, 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 a flock. This is a metaphor. And we understand that in those days, especially in Israel, they would sacrifice lambs. The blood of the lamb would be shed for the forgiveness of sins for that family or that priest or, or that prayer that was being spoken. So it was, a, it was a sacrifice. So we understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood as the spotless, innocent lamb of God. We get that. Jesus is the bread of life. We're not eating Jesus. How does he taste today? No, it's, we, we instantly understand it's not literal. It's metaphorical and it's, it's packed. What's the message? Jesus is the one who nourishes us, amen? We, we feed on his word. Some of you right now are, are really paying attention. You're feeding on the word of God because you recognize there's a meal being served here and you want to eat up the words of God. Jesus is the door. He's the way into the Father. Jesus is living water. So you, you, you know how these metaphors work. So let's take that understanding that God speaks some of his greatest truths through these metaphors and let's plug that back into our text and if you've got your notes, you're going to see I've got four metaphors that I'm pulling from the text that we just saw. And I'm going to unpack each one of these, and then we're going to see what the metaphor means, and then what's the message of repentance, because that's, that's what this is all about. John is giving us a colorful Old Testament picture about what repentance looks like as we prepare for a great move of God. It's fascinating. So here we go. Let's jump into this, this first metaphor. Chapter, uh, verse five. Every valley shall be filled in. We've already understand the literal part. What does that mean metaphorically? Well, the valley, especially in the times of the Old Testament, but also true in the New Testament, the valley was kind of a picture of fear and anxiety. In fact, you know this because you know Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not dance, no. I will not fear. Why? Because the darkest valley is where people are afraid. But David says, I won't be afraid in the dark valley, even though everybody else is, because you are with me. Most of you actually have that psalm memorized. So you know valley means difficulty. A dark valley in our life means a, part, a time where I feel abandoned from God, where I feel like because of my sin or because of the circumstances of life, you know, things are closing in on me. And as I walk into this valley, it feels like it's closing in and there's arms and the trees that are grabbing me out. Well, I make it through. It's worse than the fire swamp. It's, this is a terrible place to be in the valley in your life. And, and over and over again, did you guys get that quote from Princess Bride? Okay, just, just checking. Uh, over and over again, there's this language of the valley. People die in the valley. People don't hear from God in the valley. So Isaiah says, fill in those valleys. Well, how do I do that? There's the message. Here it is. We fill in the valleys of fear by trusting in God. That's what David did. He literally says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'm not ignoring that it's here. I'm not doing some positive confession. I'm not in the valley. No, there's no valley here. No. Even though I walk through the darkest Valley, and I don't know if you've been to the darkest valley of your life yet. I don't know how dark your valleys have been. Maybe right now you're in the middle of the darkest valley of your life. Or maybe it's just a, a dark valley that's still coming. 
But no matter where you are, God is with you. It's your job to remember that even though I walk through the darkest valley of my life, God is with me. And that memory, that saying, I will not fear, I will trust God, that's an act of repentance. And you're like, that doesn't sound anything like any message of repentance I've ever heard. I know. That's why I'm through Luke. Mm. No, no, no. You're not going to do that. Um, so, whatever the valleys are in your life, you don't give in to the darkness. You don't just say, well, this is just it is. No, you trust God. You look to God. So you're not looking to yourself. You're not looking to your own ability to get out of the valley. You're not looking to somebody else to get you out of the valley. You're looking to God. I repent of trying to get out of this valley myself. I repent of looking to someone else. I look to God. That's what repentance is. I turn. Repentance is turning from whatever focus you have to God. That's what repentance. I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my direction. I'm turning my back on everything I've trusted in, and I'm trusting in God, even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will not fear. I will not give in to fear. Fear is present. I will not give in to that. I will trust you. You are with me. Sometimes you need to say out loud, God, you're with me. I believe you. Amen? You, I mean, you know it intellectually, but sometimes you need to say, I feel scared. I feel alone, but you are with me. A couple of weeks ago, our memory verse as a church was Psalm 56.3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. It's a short verse. All of us can memorize it. I hope some of you did. We looked at it for a whole week. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. That's an act of faith. That's an act of repentance because I will not put my faith in anyone or any, any other circumstance. Amen? We got three more to go. Let's just keep going here. So the next metaphor, every mountain and hill made low. What's the big deal about that? Well, if you know your Old Testament, which is where this comes from, the mountains and the hills are where people put shrines and made sacrifices to their gods. Even Israel would go up to the mountain of God because they believed that in the mountain you would be closer to God. And so when God calls you up to the mountain, that's a big deal. But when you decide I don't like God's message, or I don't hear God anymore, or I don't like the way it's going. I'll go up to my own hill, and I'll put my own shrine there, and I'll build my own altar and make my own sacrifice to the God of my choosing. And that's what was happening all over the Old Testament. I could give you 20, 30 scriptures. Here's one from Isaiah 65. God says, you burned sacrifices to pagan gods on the mountains and defied me on the hills. Um, some, your translation may use the phrase, the high places. And so when you start looking for that phrase, you see that it's on the high places where they worshiped Baal, the false god. It's on the high places where they made pagan shrines to the god of, of Ashtoreth. And so they have all these gods, the god of Shamash, the god of Molech, and all these people are making these sacrifices to false gods. This is a picture of idolatry. A very big problem in the Old Testament. Thank goodness we don't have that problem anymore. So, so how are we going to apply this to today with, you know, we're going to go now knocking down mountains and hills? No, this is a metaphor. And the, the message here is that we, the, the, these metaphors of idolatry and pride have got to be dealt with. So 
how do we deal with this? Because you, you understood I was just joking a couple of seconds ago when I said, it's a good thing we don't have to have, worry about that today. We have a whole new version of idolatry. You, you understand every generation creates their own idols. So we don't make them out of, you know, carve them out of rock and stone. We make them out of plastic and metal. Or we turn our spouse or our children or our job into an idol. <laughs> I think it was Martin Luther or John Calvin that said, uh, I think it was John Calvin that said that, that the human heart is an idol factory, I-D-O-L. We, we just keep manufacturing idols and every age, every generation creates their idols. I didn't bring my, my, one of my idols up with me, but you have one in your pocket. Maybe it's in your lap right now. It's called an iPhone. Just, just watch people in a crowd someday. They're all centered around their phones. It's not just young people. Come on, come on, stop that. It's, it's, it's all, everybody. We live, you know, an idol is where you center your life. Oh, I love God, but I center my life around my children. They're your idols. I love God, but I center my life around my job. It's your idol. I love God, but I center my life around my paycheck. I'm constantly checking how much money do I have and you know, can I figure out a way to get more money. And whatever we center our life around, that's our idol. That's why throughout the whole family series, in the discipleship and parenting series we just finished, we kept talking about God-centeredness, how we want to help our kids to be aware of God and then to, as, ba- as infants and then become conscious of God as little toddlers so that they will center their life of God. God awareness leads to God consciousness, which leads to God-centeredness. We want to nurture God-centeredness in our children. And that's what God calls us to do. But it's going to be hard to teach our children to center their lives around God when our lives are centered around our idols. Amen? We're going to have to deal. We're going to have to repent of our idols. So how do we deal? How do we get rid of the pride and the idolatry that is in every human heart? How do we deal with that? Well, in Hosea chapter 10, he says the high places of wickedness will be torn down. That's how you deal with an idol. You don't kind of put it to the side, you tear it down. It's the sin of Israel. So here's the message of the metaphor. When we talk about the mountains and the hills will be made low, we're, we're lopping off, you know, we're, we're tearing down, we're destroying. This is violent language. This is good language. Get as violent as you want when you talk about how to deal with the idols in your life that are competing with the one and only true God, the one in whose your image I've been made, the, the one who loves you, and the one who patiently forgives you. Do not be patient with the idols in your life. They are stealing away your love. They are drawing you away to worship another God, a false God. And God knows that that path leads to destruction. So out of his love for you and out of a display of his holy character, he's jealous in a good way for us to love him with a pure heart and not to have our hearts strayed by other things. God knows that whenever you go down that path of idolatry, it's death for you. There's a way that seems right to a person, but the end is death. So out of love for you, he says, don't take that path. Tear down that idol. Deal with it. Destroy it because it's not worthy of me, a holy God, and it's not worthy of who you are made in the image of God. Isn't, isn't this incredible pictures? So we got to deal with these idols. Okay, got to keep moving. Third metaphor. 
the crooked road shall become straight. Hey, we still use this metaphor. We still talk about people being crooks. We still talk about being, being, being that was a crooked you know, deal that that person made with me. So we understand that crooked is a metaphor for deceit. I can't trust that person. It's a metaphor for corruption, crooks. And yet God says to the people of God, you've become corrupt. You've become full of deceit. And so you gotta, what's the message? You gotta deal with that corruption and you straighten the crooked paths of deceit. How? With truth. If you're memorizing our Bible verses every week, this week, this, this week starting today, I think it's this week, John 14, 6, I am, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I hope I got that right. I'm, I'm all over the, the, the verses. Yeah, I think it's starting today. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. So as we center our lives around him, we're straightening the crooked paths. As we, as we become focused on him, worshiping him, centering our lives around him, that that, that centering our lives around him, that following Jesus as his disciple, and putting all of our attention on him, that will straighten out the crooked paths. You can't walk in intimacy with God and be living a life of crookedness because in the intimacy, God will constantly point out, that's, that's a crooked path. You're not trusting me. You're, just, you're, you're living in deceit. See, this is the, this is the sign of someone who's walking in intimacy with God, they're aware of their sin. Surprising to some people. I thought the sign of intimacy with God is you don't sin. Oh, no, no. You, you sin every, every day in thought, word, and deed. It's just the closer you are to God, the more sensitive you are to your sin. The more you're aware of that little nuance of deceit, that little nuance of self-centeredness. Because walking close with God means you're close to the holiness of God. And being exposed to the holiness of God makes everything else uh, more clear. And the light of, the, of God shines upon our life. This is, this is true throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The closer you are to God, the more you are aware of even the little sins in your life. So what? So you can repent of them. God never, ever points out our sin just to trash us or to trash us at all. He never points out the sin to condemn us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God points out the sin, so we will confess it, repent of it, turn from it, and turn from that deceit, from that trusting in ourselves, from that, that those lies that we believe in. Boy, I could talk about this for the next 20 minutes. All the different lies that we believe about ourselves, that we, that we are enough, that we have what it takes to do this, or that we're not worthy, we're trash. These lies that we tell that I've talked about in previous sermons, these things are full of deceit and they keep us from walking with God. So we gotta repent of any lie, whether it's kind of a lie that you're telling to protect yourself or that's a lie you're believing because you've believed this mistruth your whole life that you're worth nothing or that you're about everything. Now again, I don't have time to preach this whole sermon, that whole message, but lies are so powerful and God can't stomach them in our lives. And so he points them out. So we might repent of them. And then finally, last one, the rough ways. Again, this one's pretty simple, I think. Rough ways are pictures of obstacles. A tree has fallen in the path. A boulder has fallen down or, or it's full of rocks. And so your, your footing is unsure. So this is a metaphor for obstacles and hindrances in our life, in our walk with God. So what are the obstacles and the hindrances that get in the way of your walk with God? Well, 
could be thousands of different things. Some of them are the idols we talked about. Sometimes it's just a hobby or sometimes it's just an interest. Sometimes it's the way you spend your time. Sometimes it's the things that you're reading and watching and and feeding your soul. Things that, that become hindrances and obstacles. And what do we do with those things? Here's the message. We remove, we don't coddle. We remove any obstacle that keeps us from connecting with God. Because see, again, the whole idea here is that the king is coming, prepare the way. Doesn't mean construction zone now. It means I'm preparing the way for me to connect with God. God is coming and I'm getting ready for him. And I, I wanna connect with him. I wanna see him. I wanna, I wanna be around when he comes. I wanna be close to him. And so anything that keeps me from connecting with him, I wanna get rid of that. Is that true for you? Or do you try to do the classic church dance of you know, kind of having your, your sins and having your things that, that, that you love to do that keep you from God? I'm not saying everything you love to do keeps you from God, but the things that you do that you know keep you from God, you know as you're doing it, I shouldn't be doing this. This is not pleasing to God. This is not gonna deepen my relationship with God. I know that, but you keep doing it. And it's this dance we play. Well, but, but I want Jesus. Well, I really love my toys. I love Jesus, but I really love doing this. You're not removing the obstacles. You're just letting them be in the way and you're gonna trip over them. They're gonna be a stumbling block in your way. You repent of them. You repent of those things that God is showing in your life. So let's wrap this all up. Repentance looks like Filling in the valleys of fear by trusting in God. Which one of these are you dealing with? Tearing down the idols of any competing loves. Holy Spirit, come and reveal to your people which one of these or several of these we need to deal with. Come, come Holy Spirit. Each one of us in all of our campuses, come. Is there valleys of fear we need to, to, to fill in by trusting in God? Or, are there idols we need to be tearing down because they're competing loves? Again, idols can be good things that we make bad things. Straighten the crooked paths of deceit with truth. Remove any obstacles connecting with God. Where is God putting his finger on your life right now? Don't think for a minute that you're able to sit here or I'm able to stand here and say, oh, I'm good. There's nothing in my life that I need to repent of. I'm telling you right now, if that's your attitude, either you're a rebel, you're blind, or you're living in denial. Every day we sin in thought, word, and deed. I'm not saying there's something massive. Don't don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying there's this huge sin in your life that you better repent of. I'm saying in every one of our lives, as the Holy Spirit shines upon our life, he will see, show us things that are hindrances, that are obstacles, that are idols, that are mistruths, that are things that, that get in the way of our relationship with him. So David prays the, pray, pray, prays the prayer in Psalm 139. God, search my heart. Because I, I, there, there's something here. I, I know it. Search my heart. And, and point out any wicked way. Strong language. But David, I thought you walked with God. I, I, I do. But I know that the human heart is an idol factory. Or as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? That's not a trash you statement. It's a statement of truth that's true about every human being. Stop denying that it's there and just say to the God who loves you, 
who is a God of grace and forgiveness, search me. You got the boldness to say that today? You, you can't pray this prayer unless there is a, a courage in you and a trust that God is good. I'm going to step on all of the toes right now. It's the cowards that won't pray this prayer. I don't know. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want people to know. I don't, I don't want to know what's going on in there. You don't know God. You don't know his love because he never points out that stuff to trash us. He points out that stuff to heal us, to save us, to deepen us. Because see, repentance and surrender, those are the things that prepare the way for God to move in your life, in my life, and in our world. I'm going to ask our worship leaders to come up in all of our campuses now. They're going to lead us in a song. It's a, it's a simple song of surrender. Here's the words. Here I am, down on my knees again. I've been here before. I'll be here again. I'm hungry for you, God. Close your eyes with me. Close your eyes with me. Is there anybody here who's hungry for God? Is there anybody here who say, God, move in power? In my life. God, deal with anything you find. Some of you know exactly what those things are right now. You, God's been speaking this whole sermon. You know what they are. Would you say, God, deal with that? Others of you, honestly, you really don't know right now. So you, you want to be open to God. You want to be, you want to be responsive to his spirits moving. You don't know what it is. So just say, God, I open my life to you. What is it, God? Gently point it out, and I'll repent of it. Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you move in power? And would you begin your gentle work of pointing out our sin, of pointing out our idolatry? Holy Spirit, come like a rushing wind. Blow through this place. Avon Lake, Lorraine, Vermilion, Illyria, anyone who's watching online, God, blow through these places with your spirit's breath. Breathe life. Shine light. Expose our need for you. Create hunger in us, God. God, move. Here we are. It's about all we can do is just to say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I surrender. Would you all stand to your feet? Just say those words, I surrender. Say them out loud. I surrender. Say it again. I surrender. Now, Lord, hear our cry. Hear our prayer. As we sing, here I am my knees again, I surrender all. In Jesus' name we pray.